The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Okay, we are live. Bill Amadeo, McManus Amadeo, and Grable and Associates. Today we got Jordan Vadat. One of the top civil litigators in the state of Michigan. I'm probably familiar with his firm. I'll let him tell you about that. Today we're going to talk about civil litigation and criminal litigation. How assault and battery kind of intertwine. We're going to talk about bar fights. That's more his field and the liability of bouncers. Jordan, tell everybody who you are in your firm. Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks, Bill, for having me on. I'm Jordan Vadat and... Uh... Here I'm with Vadat Wiseman. My uh, business partner is his better half. Much and... better half. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we do personal injury, a um, little bit of criminal defense, just the, the small stuff like misdemeanors, uh, and a lot of tra- traffic infractions. They go hand in hand a lot of times with auto accidents, which we do a lot of, uh, represent a lot of people injured in auto accidents, slip and falls, general negligence. We also do um, some, we represent a lot of small businesses and business disputes, so breach of contract and, and that sort of thing. We've got a pretty diverse group of uh, law- uh, lawyers with different skill levels and, and talents, and so we, uh, yeah, we can really service um, a lot of different clients. And so I'm happy to talk today to Bill. We have some cases where, um, you know, some civil and criminal will intersect and assault and battery is one of those areas and so there are times where uh, Bill might refer a case over and um, where it is an assault and battery and a lot of I noticed there's a lot of people have uh, similar uh, questions and a lot of uh, confusion around what's the criminal aspect of an assault and battery and what's the civil aspect to a, uh, an assault and battery and so that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'll start with the crim. When you guys think assault and battery in Michigan, you know, you think your traditional fight is generally a 90-day misdemeanor, but you can do aggravated assault, which is a misdemeanor. Felonious assault becomes a four-year felony. Uh, it all depends on the severity of the actions, or I should say the allegations. Now, one of the things that was interesting in law school, and I'm kicking it back the first term right now, we learned assault and battery is a small part of criminal, but it was also two of our first intentional torts. Now, I don't even know how to spell civil, so I'll kick that part to you. But I can tell you, on its face, when we hear about assaultive behavior, that seems to be severe. But the actual concept of assault itself is not deemed a big-ticket item in criminal defense. I think it comes up more in the civil litigation. Generally, if you're charged with an assault, which could be a bar fight, could be you know, just your plain backyard brawl, it's not usually something that's going to lead to major incarceration or incarceration at all, depending on your prior criminal history. But a lot of times the defendant will have to take a no contest plea, if that's allowed, if they're at fault. And the main reason for the no contest plea would be they're concerned about civil liability. For a judge to accept a no contest plea, there has to be a justification. And the biggest justification would be civil liability. Tell them about assault and battery from a civil aspect. Yeah, so going back to uh, our law school days, just to make it simple, the battery is the unwanted touching. 
right? It's an unwanted, intentional infliction of force or violence by one person against another. And the assault is the attempt, basically, of a battery, right? And so it's, it's the fear that you get of, um, of being the victim of a battery. So the most common example of the assault portion, when you have, you're thinking assault and battery is, you know, if I pretend to throw a punch, but it makes you flinch, technically I've committed an assault, right? I, it's an attempted battery, and I showed you have a reasonable, a reasonable person in that situation would think that they're about to get hit, right? So I made, I, I made you imminent fear of being hit. So that's the assault, and, and there are situations where you, you want, might have one um, and not the other. So for example, uh, for those of you that follow MMA, Recently, we had uh, Colby Covington was the victim of a battery, but not necessarily maybe an assault from what I know. And, and the facts that we know so far is that he was at a restaurant and Jorge Masvidal uh, apparently sucker punched him. So in that situation, if, if Colby was just sitting there with, with his friend or acquaintance and then out of nowhere he gets sucker punched, he never actually suffered an, an assault. Right, he never saw it coming. He never had that fear of being hit, um, but the, the he did suffer a battery. Right, he was punched, and he and there was an intentional use of force there. Now he may have suffered an assault after the punch, you know, depending on what happened. And so these cases, yeah, they can get pretty uh, fact specific as far as what what occurs. But we can uh, talk about the intersection. That's really what I want to cover here. Is that those are the basics of a battery and assault. But what are the situations that come up where someone might be charged with a battery and assault, but they also may have their own claim for a civil claim for assault and battery? And we've had a couple of these uh, through the course of our uh, careers and just dealing with, with Bill and his firm where uh, you know they're defending uh, somebody in, in an, a civil assault and battery or a criminal assault criminal. and battery case. And then we end up taking the, the civil portion so I don't know if you remember some of those uh, cases you want to talk about. Yeah, and I, you know, usually the reason why I call you guys is because I want to make sure they get paid. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> so I protect them from incarceration. But we there's a case right now, which is, and we'll never get in the names or anything like that, but I think one of the things that we should lead into is bar fights. Because bar fights are one of your specialties, right? Yeah. All right, so let's talk about how assaults and batteries go down. Because in my world, there's a bouncer that hits somebody in the club. And I'm trying to defend the bouncer. My argument is, well, he's acting in the scope of his employment. He's using justifiable force, etc. Where would you flip on that in the bar fight situation, generically speaking? Yeah. And so the cases I've litigated with bar fights, I brought some paperwork with me. And it's actually a manual that was developed by a law firm for one of the local bars in the area to instruct the bar, uh, the bouncers on What's their scope of, of their behavior? What, what are they allowed to do? What are they not allowed to do? And um, surprisingly, it, it says it in the manual itself that the bouncers, they don't have any extra rights than any other private citizen, you know, surprisingly. So really, it's their job to actually de-escalate situations and to try to convince whoever the agitator is that's causing a commotion to leave voluntarily. That should be their number one goal, and that that it's it says that in a lot of these manuals or the training materials that they get, that part of their job is calming the situation down, not escalating it, and trying to talk them out. 
Now, obviously, there's there's going to be situations where people are acting unruly, they're intoxicated, um, and I'll skip ahead to the, the specific section, but it says, uh, it is your job to get people off the property, but technically, you are only allowed to talk them out. So where does that leave us when someone refuses to leave? According to the letter of the law, our only option is to call the police. Now, it even goes on to say it's not practical to call the police every single time someone refuses to leave, right? So they, it, the manual goes on and the training material, materials go on to say there's an acceptable gray area in the situation where the jury or a potential jury or community would accept a certain level of physical interaction between the bouncer and the person. And, and so then it has some instructions. You're supposed to get another bouncer there with you and try to escort them by the arm um, out. Now, if they resist, it goes on to explain uh, to state, you're supposed to stop and, uh, and explain to them what you're doing and continue to usher them towards the, the door. And you're giving them kind of one last chance to leave on their own. Now, if that's still not working, without using excessive force, it tells them with another door uh, bouncer to walk them out of the building, again, escorting them by the arms, explicitly tells them, do not push them downstairs, do not push them into walls, do not throw a punch. Um, you just firmly escort them out of the building. Now in situations where it's not possible to escort them out of the building or if they become violent towards the bouncer, it, it tells them they need to call the police at that point. And it really <coughs> goes into detail, it's very critical for the bar not to have a customer call the police and and complain that they've been the victims of an assault and battery now now by the bouncers right and so in those situations they can the bouncers can protect themselves they can use self-defense but they can never it's never permissible for them to throw a punch kick people and and that kind of thing and and i think that's where we see uh and we can talk about some hypotheticals but you know, yeah. um, or even cases that we've we've litigated where um, you know you have someone that truly is the ag aggressor, but then the bouncers also go too far, and so you, both things could, could be true. You could have somebody who really did commit an assault and battery, maybe against someone else, and they are properly being ushered, but then the bouncers go too far, and now he has a civil claim against the bouncers. That that is a possibility sometimes. So I have an interesting question. This goes to some of your cases, some of the things that. I've dealt with or kind of dealing with say you want to sue a police agency or you want to sue a prosecutor's office for doing something wrongful what's the immunity can you break that down a little bit because it's not easy to oh, sue no. these government entities no. and what I want to lead with this is what happens when it's an officer that beats somebody at the bar say the officer did the same thing the bouncer did but they exceed the scope of what they needed to do oh. what do you do then as a plaintiff and what's the hurdle? <laughs> it's an incredibly high uh, hurdle to hold uh, law enforcement officers accountable under the law. And that's why uh, some of these civil cases against private security companies are so much, the burden of proof is so much easier. I mean, we have the same burden of proof as any civil case. It's a preponderance of evidence. And um, so in these situations, you know, if they use excessive force, they're clearly acting in the scope of their employment. They've exceeded that. There's arguments that they're not trained properly. You know, li liability usually isn't a huge hurdle 
But in a case where there's a, a actual law enforcement officer involved, uh, they're protected by government immunity. So they're protected from or uh, by you know they can act negligent essentially you know um, and that bad. They can act grossly them, negligent, but not grossly negligent. Okay. What's right? the difference for people that don't know between negligence and gross negligence? Because it's something in law school that wasn't truly explained. Yeah. We learned about negligence, right? We did essays on negligence, but we never really told about gross negligence. It came up as an afterthought. Right. What is that standard if you want to sue right. police Because every day I get people call me, they want to sue police officers. Right. And I mentioned them to you guys, and one thing Carol always says to me at home is, it's a tough standard. It's possible. Yeah. But what is gross negligence, and what do you have to overcome? It has to literally be actions or behaviors that to the community would look outrageous completely outrageous wreck oh, reckless almost so like that's the the standard is, is of gross negligence is that you know a lot of their actions are protected under ordinary negligence and it's it's something you have to look at, at a, on a case-by-case -case basis it's hard to say there's a lot of uh, federal case law uh, on this and it's it's tough for plaintiffs to uh, actually maintain a civil action against the law enforcement not impossible but you know, typically, if you if you want to your claim to survive, you're going to have to have um, either multiple witnesses to corroborate your version of events, or um, usually video of the officer's uh, conduct, and um, and usually it's through a third party. You know, I'm pretty cynical, you know, doing plaintiff work, and when you get body cam footage uh, back or uh, results back from a FOIA. You're going to see there's going to be portions of the video where there's no audio. Right. Uh, the video is going to jump, um, you know, and, and so, you know, it leads you to speculate, okay, well, what, what was skipped over? Uh, why is it, why is there not volume in this section of the video, um, right? But if you have a third party that happens to have the video showing the, the officer's conduct, then, you know, you might be able to, uh, to get over that hurdle. I do have one example of a case that we had where, uh, there's a young man and he went to a uh, dispensary with his uncle um, mm -hmm. and this was before it was uh, recreational marijuana was legal but his uncle had a, a, a med card so he, he was just accompanying his uncle he's in there and it just so happens the Detroit SWAT comes in uh, to do a raid at the time that they're in there now the client he had just had surgery from an auto accident case and uh, they had removed part of his cartilage from his uh, rib and they used it to construct him. Uh, his, uh, his ear had been torn off in the auto accident. So they used some, some of his rib to reconstruct his ear and he still had a bandage around his head from the surgery. And so when the police uh, entered the marijuana dispensary, they asked everybody you know, to get on the ground and he couldn't, he couldn't lay flat on the ground because of the incision to uh, his rib. So he sat, Kind of Indian with his leg crossed, Indian style, and put his hands up. And one of the officers yelled at him, told him to get on the ground. He's explaining he can't, and then he gets pistol whipped right in the portion where he had in his ear that was just had just undergone surgery. He's knocked out unconscious. The uh, I spoke to the owner of the dispensary. He said there was a pool of blood around the client, and around. He said he thought he might have been dead even because there was so much blood, and. Um, and so in that situation, that, for example, that's out, uh, outrageous conduct, right? You have an officer intentionally striking somebody uh, in a portion of his body where it's, he's clearly already injured. Um, so you have a, a level there of, of malice, you have the intent, um, and, and it's, it's, you know, 
I think most people are going to find that, that that's reckless conduct, you know, so that that definitely would meet meet the standard there. I know I got to watch what I say on active cases because, I mean, I have some haters out there and I have some pretty heated active cases. But the one case people keep asking about your firm right now, and I don't know how much you get into it, but this whole justice for Joey thing seems to be like a national case now. Can you break that down a little bit, what's going on there? Uh, just because it's pending, I don't know if it's a good idea we talk about it too just much. Just broadly explain, um, like, who the plaintiff is. Yeah, and so in that case, I mean, we have uh, a young man who, I just speak of it in, in general terms, that they're trying to paint out to be uh, a drug addict, but he was really uh, a young man that was going through the criminal uh, justice system on really what are... Low end. Low end yeah. sucks. Yeah, minor charges. Like stuff yeah. that most people wouldn't even be incarcerated for. Right. And, you know, he's waiting for a court date. And, um, you know, he essentially gets, uh, he was sick, you know, and yeah. he wasn't diagnosed. And uh, because of the stigma of what they want to paint him to be a, a drug addict, he was denied basic human care. And, you know, he was growing up blood in and out of consciousness for a long time. And, um, you know, he wasn't given the medical treatment he needed. And it's really, it's, it's tragic. And it's unfortunate he ended up losing his life. And he's a young man. And um, so that case is pending. You know, there's, there's a med mal component there. You know, there's a 1983 component against the jail. Um, because, you know, when you're in the, in the custody, you know, it doesn't matter what the allegations are, are against you. Um, you're in the state's custody. I mean, they have a duty, you know, to... Uh, take care of you, uh, your basic human needs, you know, and for somebody to just, for them to just totally ignore someone and, and you know, <coughs> by the time they called medical, you know, help for him, um, he was already, he had multiple organ failure, he was already, you know, on his way out. And so, you know, it's really tragic. And those, and it's really important, you know, when you have a case like that where your client's deceased, you have a huge responsibility to the, the client, their whole family, and to the community to make sure that you hold these agents, these agencies accountable, and make right. sure that this doesn't happen again. No matter how egregious, or horrible, or minor the allegations are against someone, if they're sick uh, and they need care, that you need to make sure they get that care. I think, and I'll speak like a criminal defense lawyer right now. I think people lose sight that when somebody's inside, they're still entitled to some constitutional protections. And I think as a plaintiff's counsel, and correct me if I'm wrong. I always hear from prosecutors, I have to send a message to the community. Same thing with the plaintiff's lawyer, right? You know, I mean, if you don't get a good enough verdict for somebody who lost their life, or at least fought for that verdict, what does it say to the next potential defendant? Right. You know, and that's one of those things. I always view plaintiffs, lawyers, and civil litigation, the equivalent in some ways is a prosecutor in criminal litigation, because that's what you guys are prosecuting, the civil action. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. Tell me about a little bit about medical malpractice, because I'm just going to ask this. I know my mom passed away. It was a horrible case, and we lost. And I spent tons of money. One of the issues we had, which broke me back in the day, was we couldn't find a good expert to go against doctors. And what I learned in that process, when you're suing a doctor, from a defense perspective, doctors come out of the woodwork to protect their own, but it's hard to find a top echelon expert to actually go against that craft. Is that a true story or that's just bad luck in my family? Yeah. No, I mean, that is true. And that's why usually 
in med mal cases, a lot of the experts are from out of state. So you usually want to use a doctor because essentially to back up, you know, in a medical malpractice case, the plaintiff has to prove that there's been a breach of the standard of care. You know, it depends on the specialty. So it could be chiropractic care. So if you have, you know, if you're alleging that a chiropractor committed medical malpractice, you need to find another chiropractor who's going to review your records, review what happened to you and say, yes, that other chiropractor definitely committed malpractice. So, you know, it's, it's also just a matter of just good practice and etiquette to just get somebody from out of state to do that because you wouldn't really want one of your, you know, to put those doctors in that position where they're, you know, they have to be either cover, feel like they need to cover for their friend or an acquaintance or snitch against their, you know, friend or acquaintance. And so, but yeah, those, those cases are expensive they're, and they're difficult. Um, they're really difficult to, to win and prove because a lot of times there is, there are differences in opinions and uh, the standard of care does change. Um, you know, continually as medicine and, and uh, advances. Um, but yeah, this is, you should have care on for, for med <laughs> You uh, should have care on for med <laughs> I should talk about that. She gets enough of me at home. She don't want to hear me on a podcast. But I mean, do you feel, and maybe it goes county by county, the temperature of juries on like med mal cases, do you think generally they feel empathy for the plaintiffs? Because I can tell you in Jersey, in my case, they were like, really, how dare you sue the doctors? Sorry about your mother, but boom. I mean, does it go county by county? Like, is there, like, the more fluent county generally is going to want to protect the doctors, the poorer county is going to protect the plaintiffs, or is that just a myth? Is the law the law? Yeah. I don't know on med mal. We haven't tried any med mal cases. Uh, you know, we did try a um, general negligence case down in Texas, and I got to talk to the jury there. And we tried another case in Oakland County last year as well, and got to talk to the jury. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Jury selection is really, really important. Yeah. And um, that's one thing, you know, I've been working on trying to really, if the judges will allow us, you really got to get, uh, try to get a feel for what are the, wh- wh- who are these jurors and how are they viewing, what's their worldview like? Right. You know, and because right. uh, the case that Karen and I tried in Oakland County, I mean, we had a, a young kid with, uh, you know, fracture, uh, fracture to his spine and, uh, stayed in ICU and we talked to the jury afterwards they're they're mentioning that they didn't really think he was that injured you know and, and uh, they had all they all had their own ideas of, of why uh, one of them said I didn't think um, the fact that he wasn't prescribed a wheelchair after the hospital he used one and he needed one and there was testimony about that but they hone in on the fact that oh well it wasn't prescribed by a medical doctor mm. so maybe he really wasn't that injured otherwise they would have prescribed it Right. And so there were certain things that, um, yeah, when you're dealing, that's why trial is very risky because you never know. You might have a case you think is really shaky and you'll win. And you might have another case you think is really solid and the jury, um, just for whatever reason, doesn't doesn't buy it. I've always said I've had 15, I mean, thousands thousand case, but 15 that were either at trial or verge of trial. Right. And 112 lost three, which is a pretty great record for Krim, but. Six of those wins, I should have lost. And two of those losses, I should have won. You never know what a jury's mm-hmm. going to do. And I tell you, in Wayne County, for like a criminal case, here's the problem with Wayne County. Wayne County, they don't give you the questionnaires. Because in my opinion, the jury questionnaires are so critical. I want to study the potential jurors, learn what their social media trends are, 
There's programs that do that now, but there's nothing as good as actually looking the stuff up yourself. In Wayne County, you don't get those questions till the morning of trial. Places like Washville, you might get them two weeks before trial. But like in Wayne, they know if they like you or don't like you, they pick sides at four there before anything is said. Is it like that in civil litigation? Because in criminal, that's all day long. Yeah, and that's why I think it is. Because then that's why I really try to talk to the jury, and while I'm talking. And even when I'm asking them questions, I, I'm looking, I'm trying to read them and see how they're interacting with me. And it's hard to do when they're wearing a mask. Um, right, right. You know, and that's another challenge. And, and one of the challenges in the case we tried in Oakland is that, you know, you have, you only have so many jurors that you can actually see in the courtroom. Right. They have an overflow room where they're zooming you in and you're not seeing any of their reactions. And some of those people are coming, you know, end up coming into the courtroom later and you end up, so your time is limited so there are some challenges with COVID as far as um so we're i'm st you know we're still learning on how to overcome some of those uh, <coughs> challenges and making sure you know you do really do get a jury that's the one going to pay attention to the evidence and that is fair and impartial because you're right you have some jurors that um they'll make up their mind really quick and it's usually based off you know very trivial or insignificant um kind of vain things whether they like one attorney over the other or they don't trust you know i had a juror tell me that you know he didn't he didn't believe uh, or didn't think my client was credible you know very early on um and so it's kind of like well if someone makes a judgment about your client like that before they've even really heard gotten anything in, yeah heard their testimony uh, or heard them on cross, how they withstand cross-examination i mean that's kind of that's sad right because you're not really getting a, a fair uh, shake at that point um, but yeah getting there was one thing I wanted to bring up as far as um, cases against uh, bars or if you've been the victim of uh, of a assault and battery or they're claiming you know that you could be a victim and charged at the same time believe it or not and so what I want to talk about is you know we want this happened in one of the situations uh, a case that Bill's firm referred over where you have a young man uh, basically was really intoxicated at the bar and he's being he's kicked out of the bar rightfully so I mean he probably shouldn't have been drinking anymore he's acting out a little bit but then the the bouncers proceed to um, really inflict a lot of physical harm against them and that's on, on video and so he definitely has a civil case against those uh, bouncers individually and against the bar but then a lot of times in these situations that individual might get charged and, and why would they get charged is because someone from the bar is going to say, look, this guy assaulted us, assaulted one of the bouncers, you know, before when we were inside the bar. And so now we're going to charge him. And sometimes it's a defense tactic, you know, in this, in, uh, to counter the civil lawsuit is to say, well, this guy was the aggressor. Look, he was the one charged. And a lot of times that doesn't come in, but I'm sure... You know, you've seen that, and this happened also with the, one of the uh, those police brutality cases we had out in Ipsy, you know, where we believe they end up getting charged, uh, or we have a fear of sending, for example, a civil litigation hold notice, which yeah. I can talk about what that is. But sometimes when we send those out and we inform either a law enforcement agent or a bar that, hey, we're going to hold you accountable and you need to, you know, keep all records, keep all your security cameras. Then all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're charging some of the people with yeah. crimes. I often see victims get charged with crimes. That blows me away. 
it blows me away when a prosecutor's office has the audacity to do that. But, you know, sometimes it's sign of play. I had one prosecutor actually say to me, it's a case where a victim was beaten, and he defended himself, and then they charged him for defending himself. And it's not actually his case that he didn't charge it, right? It was charged from somebody way back when. And he said to me, and I quote, well, I don't care if Sir Oliver Wendell Holmes charged it, I'm prosecuting it. And to me, that sends a message that you're just following the leader right now. I'm so sick of victims being charged with crimes. It is outrageous when that happens. It pisses me off beyond belief. But I'm seeing it all the time. And it's kind of sad when a prosecutor will have enough courage to say this is bullshit. But, you know, here we are. And, and so you bring up a really good point. Because if you have, if there's someone out there in that exact situation, you know, obviously you want to hire Bill or a criminal defense attorney to fight those charges. But at the same time, I think this is sometimes where people stop at that point. And this is why I wanted to do, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is to inform people that you don't have to just stop there and just be in defensive mode. You can go on offense and hire us or another civil civil uh, litigation attorney to file a lawsuit for being the victim of the assault and battery. And we can have a count of what's called malicious pro prosecution that can be added in there. And so then the fees and expenses that you, if Bill's ultimately successful in getting your charges dismissed, the fees and expenses that you uh, paid for his services can be claimed as damages in our case. And malicious prosecution is a difficult element, but even if we, let's just forget about malicious prosecution, and if you're just filing a assault and battery case against the, the perpetrators, you, sh you have that right to do it. And I think a lot of people get confused um, that Bill or other attorneys have referred over when I talk to them and I try to explain to them, well, you know, we have, you can bring a civil action against the bar or against the people who did this to you. And a lot of times like, well, the, you know, I'm trying to correct the police report or I'm trying you know, through my lawyer, I'm trying to make sure that they uh, end up getting charged. And that's fine. If they end up charging the other people with a crime, that's fine. It still doesn't take away your right to sue them civilly. So they could be charged. The, the other individuals that caused you harm could be charged with a crime and that's fine. You know, we can let that play out, uh, but you could still sue them civilly too. And we sh and you should absolutely do it. And this reminds me uh, of a case that we we had where it was someone who was severely beaten at a bar by somebody who was actually banned uh, by the by the bar. He's on the ban list for it, but gotcha. for whatever reason, they let him in that night, and he beat up a bunch of people. He was a big guy. He was like six four, six five, and uh, he had. He, he, had, he would frequently get aggressive, and he had multiple assault batteries um, on his record, and he, he severely beat our client. Our client couldn't work anymore. Uh, he was in his uh, 50s, and um, we sent out all the notices of, of intent that we're going to hold the bar liable uh, because they shouldn't have let him in that night. They knew it, and they still did, and this is what resulted from it, um, and unfortunately, you know, what happens in some of these situations is there's intimidation tactics um, that are involved. And unfortunately, in that situation, the, the perpetrator actually ended up passing away. And uh, we could have tried to go after him, but at that point, uh, you know, our client decided to, to drop the case um, and didn't, did not want to pursue the, the bar either. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from fear that maybe some, something could come back at you. But the thing is, once the litigation hold notice is out there, 
uh, we have that documented that we we put you on notice of a civil claim. If they try to retaliate against the client, we can use that against them, and it doesn't have to. It could be anybody affiliated, or it could, you know, if it's other random people. If we can show that they were acting as agents of the the bar, or the establishment, whoever it, we're suing, you know, we can use that against them. We can get a PPO against them, right? There's protect legal protections in place to protect yourself, but. Um, so I get pretty, it's, it's pretty frustrating when, you know, whether it's a assault and battery or, or sometimes this happens frequently also in sexual assault, civil sexual assault cases where there's intimidation or bullying tactics by the defendants to get my clients to drop the case or promises of cash or money and say, Hey, just drop your lawyer, drop your case. I'll throw you some cash. And it's one of the worst things that can happen because you're not holding them accountable then. You're letting them get off easy and cheap, and you're emboldening that type of behavior again to, to reoccur to someone else. What about when somebody's falsely accused of rape? Is there a good defamation lawsuit there? Because I'm seeing it all the time. Like, I'm not going to mention the county, but um, let's say one county where CSC charges. If every CSC that came across the desk was factual, that would mean like there's 20 people getting raped every five minutes. And I see a lot of times that people use CSC allegations to sue civilly for their assaults. What about when the claims bull? Yeah, if you have absolute, because for defamation, I mean, yeah, if you have absolute proof, like you'd have to have absolute proof that it was manufactured by the, the alleged victim. Okay. You know, and if you have that, then yes, I think you can. But if you don't, if it was just a he said, she said, or there was there wasn't enough evidence to pursue. A conviction or to pursue the claim uh, you know the criminal case then um, you know it's, it's not so clear you have to be I'd have to look at that in a case-by-case basis but uh, but I think if there's absolute evidence that it was completely fabricated then absolutely I mean um, and you may have other claims as well uh, that we could look into um, in that situation had a text from somebody that said they're facing criminal charges right now, but they were using self-defense. Is that something where they could sue despite being a criminal defendant? We kind of covered that. Yeah. No, and absolutely. I mean, just because usually, let me say this, because there's a lot of confusion on, on these issues a lot of times, and people will think, like even with an auto accident too, if, if they were uh, found to be at fault, they're like, well, they think they don't have a case, uh, even though... They may have not been at fault. The officer may have given them a ticket. Um, but just because a lot of times, unless the officer was actually there and witnessed the accident, they're going based off of secondhand information. Right. Right. And they're looking at the scene and trying to make a determination. If you fight that ticket, that police report, even if that police report says you're at fault, it's not coming in the, into evidence. Okay. So they still, you know, we still as the plaintiff have the burden of proving our case. But again, we're not a prosecutor, so the burden is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's by a preponderance of the evidence, which means it's just just more likely than not. You know, 51% chance that what we're purporting to be true is true. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're charged with a crime and you're acting in self-defense, and you're actually the victim, even if you end up pleading to something, let's say you end up pleading to disorderly, that's not coming into evidence, right? It's, right. it's prejudicial. It's unduly prejudicial. So in your claim against whoever um, you're claiming committed assault and battery against you, um, you still have to prove your case, right? And you can prove it by your testimony 
and whatever other evidence you want to submit. Um, but the fact that you were charged isn't a death knell. Now, it doesn't look uh, great, right? And we had, like, the case, one of, some of the civil cases, there are times where the judge will let that evidence in that you were maybe charged, but it's still, you know, even if it comes in, it's still up to the jury to determine, um, you know. The weight of that evidence. Yeah, the weight of that evidence. And even with, like, with mutual fights, right, you might have a situation where, Maybe a client did throw some punches, and there was, you know, there was a just a mutual fight, but they end up becoming uh, the victim of a vicious attack afterwards, right? Um, then we have a, a whole slew of comparative analysis that we can do to see, okay, well, maybe our client wasn't completely innocent in the situation, but so we would deduct like a jury in that situation would deduct the. The, or an apportion, okay, if they think he was 20% at fault for causing the fight, well, whatever recovery is, is made in the case is deducted by that 20%, right? As long as he wasn't more than 50%, you know, at fault for causing the accident, then he, or, or the, uh, the fight, then, um, you know, he could, he, he or she could proceed with the claim. All right. Good stuff. Um, we'll be doing more of these, but kind of feeling um, for civil, you and Kara should probably follow up on them people like hear about the criminal stuff but yeah. i don't have the knowledge these guys have on civil litigation whenever we have a civil issue we just ship it right out to them um it's not our thing but i do think um not, you could say i'm biased but i think but wiseman is a real rising firm i think they give you more of a personal touch than some of the quote unquote bigger name firms and uh they've been getting great results so whenever there's a civil case i send it there we try to stay in our lane with business and criminal and Jen's great with divorce, but, you know, I don't know how to spell civil, so I just ship everything out there. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. We are back. I'm Bill Amadeo of McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates. Tonight, we're going to talk about... The Widener Trial and Mission Program in 2002, which, um, that's kind of a unique story. And then, <laughs> I want to talk about Seinfeld and Shiawassee. Here's this thing. In my free time, I create this, like, thing called Five Years Later, where you take a show, five years later you develop the characters. What I decided to do tonight was about what would happen with Seinfeld in Shiawassee. And, um, yeah, it's been a long couple days. Getting over, like, this flu thing, kind of exhausted. But I thought it was pretty funny. Anyway, let's start with the serious stuff. Widener, Trial Admission Program, 2002. Oh, man. So I'm trying to get into law school, right? And I keep getting turned down by law school after law school. And I finally get into the Widener Harrisburg campus trial admission program. And what a mistake that was. So here's how it went down. Bob McDevitt was president of Local 54. And I'm getting killed on the LSAT. I asked Bob McDevitt, does he know anybody that could help me get into law school? Wasn't asking for a free ride. It's give me a chance to prove myself. And he introduced me to this guy named George Miller. George Miller's somebody I can't stand. He's a lawyer in Jersey. 
And George Miller was a professor at Widener. So George Miller says, if I pay my own way and I go up to Widener for six weeks, they'll put me in this program. So I said, okay, great. Now, little did I know, I was kind of a pawn between George Miller and Bob McDevitt. <clears throat> Bob McDevitt never wanted me to get into law school, so I was helping him get elected. George Miller, I just can't stand. So they figured out, let's send this kid to Harrisburg for six weeks, make him pay, and pretend to do a favor for him. I know I was a pawn. So the first thing I had to do was get time off from work, and that was fun. And there was a girl I was dating back then, and I told her, I'm going to Harrisburg for six weeks. And she said to me, I can't wait six weeks for you. Okay. She said, if you go to Harrisburg, we're done. So <laughs> I start driving back to her house, and I'm like changing my CD and not saying anything. We're sitting there in silence, right, for like just 20 minutes. So I drop her over to her house. She goes, what are you doing? So he said, we're done. Please leave the car. So she starts going, oh, you son of a bitch. You're going to tell me I can't go to law school for six weeks or we're done? See ya. That was the end of that. Um, so it was a weird breakup. And a friend of mine was going to drive me to Harrisburg. Now, I want you to think 2002. Bill Amadeo driving a Chevy Malibu with no GPS. Am I ever going to make it? You guys know I can't find my way around without a GPS. Let's just be real. I know. Megan Mass today. I came up with this thing on fixed false beliefs. She thought I was brilliant, but what did Megan say to me afterwards? Do you think I'm able to find your way back to the hotel, which was like a block away? People have no faith in my sense of direction. So, Mayor Ken, Carol Wiseman on my day. Boy, everybody's tuning in tonight. Mayor Ken, I completely endorse you. I'm going to put money behind you. I want you on the podcast with me. Jewel, I'll be home soon. <laughs> Tell Teddy I said hi. So, I'm driving to Harrisburg without a GPS, and my friend's supposed to drive with me, but he's a drunk. So he got, like, drunk on Johnny Black that night. So I'm driving up there by myself. I got, like, this map, right? I mean, it might as well just speak Greek to me. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just driving, and I'm looking for signs and whatever. I get lost. Shocker. Now, mind you, at this point in my life, I'm not involved in the criminal justice system on any level. So I stopped at this gas station. Hey, Corey Lapley. And um, there was this box for the state troopers. And it says, if you need help, open this phone and use this phone. So I tell, I pick up the phone. Hey, I need help. <laughs> the state trooper comes. What's the problem? <laughs> I'm lost. <laughs> I never saw a cop. So pissed off until I was cross-examining him years later. You f***ing used that phone because you were lost? It said that you need help. I needed help. We started talking about boxing a little bit, lighten the mood. Told me which way to go. Anyway, after the drama with the state police, and finally getting to Harrisburg, 
it was six weeks of really intense and grueling studies. And I finally knew, holy shit, this is where I belong. I had my study groups going, and I was on top of stuff. I knew I aced these three classes. And you had to get like a 2.5 to be accepted into the program full-time. So I'm getting ready to leave Tropicana. It's over. I know this little school thing's going to happen. And I'm going to go to Harrisburg. Results come back. They don't take me. And I called up the professors. I was like, what do you mean? Because I know I aced these finals. And here was the trick with the trial admissions program, the TAP program at Widener. You did not have a right to review your finals. Couldn't even see your finals. What's that tell you? I thought it was all bullshit. They knew who they were taking before the program started. And some of the idiots they took, I was shocked. I'm not getting into law school now. And I will tell you, so many people at Tropicana were laughing in my face about it. There was this one guy, Mike Owens, waiter. And I'm working Kitchen North one day. And he comes up to me. And he goes, hey, I heard you didn't get into law school. I didn't get in this time. Because you're not getting any younger. And like those were the type of things I want to just kill someone right then and there. And you start thinking, holy shit, this might not happen. Remember one thing, guys, don't hear the noise. Don't have rabbit ears. One thing my aunt used to tell me on the baseball field, never listen to the crowd, just focus on the game. Because when you listen to the crowd, that's what rabbit ears is. It's when shit starts crumbling. It's when you start second-guessing yourself. And I'm working these crazy hours at TROP, and I come home one night. And I see Aunt Mare crying on the dining room table with her rosary beads out. And I hear her saying, I know she thinks she's talking to God, like, he's such a good boy, he's trying so hard. And I walked home and said, Mayor, what's wrong? And she looked at me and she goes, it's going to be okay. Maybe you could do something else in life. And it was the first time I remember my aunt not believing in me. And... That did something to me, you know, because my aunt, here's the woman that raised me, right? I to give everything. She raised me, she raised my mom. And Aunt Mare's heartbroken because some ass in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, fucking Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, said I was not good enough to be a lawyer. And it broke my aunt's heart. And here's Aunt Mare crying her eyes out, and I'm hugging her, it's going to be okay. And um, cool, it would happen a year and a half later. But it just, it was, it was something else, man. It was just a weird, weird game. I didn't quite understand how things happened the way they did, but they did. I will say this, though. Sometimes not getting something is a great thing. You know, sometimes that goal you wanted when you didn't achieve it ends up being a big win. I definitely would have had my life change if I went to Widener. And, um, that's all I could say is I'm glad that didn't happen. I certainly know I was good enough for that program. I know the whole thing was bullshit. 
it felt horrible seeing that mirror broke down like that. And, uh, but here we are. I'm glad, I'm looking at these chats right now. A lot of interesting personalities going on. Love all you guys. Thanks for tuning in. But let's get to what we really tuned in for, huh? Seinfeld and Shiawassee. So, there's this thing that I drew up a while ago. Five years later. And what five years later is, is basically you take a show or a movie, and you write your own script for five years later. And what I'm thinking right now is, what would happen if the Seinfeld characters ended up in Shiawassee five years after the show ended? And I'm kind of all over the place with this, but I took some of the characters and I figured out what are we going to do? How are we going to break this down? And um, I only I have seven characters I listed, and I'm putting them in Shiawassee today. Now, let me start with this. When some of these characters had legal issues, because they were from New York, naturally they called me first, right? Um, here's the thing, though. Some of them went with some other Detroit lawyers. And as you know, Detroit lawyers don't always do well in Shiawassee. So we'll, we'll break into that. And uh, we'll see how it goes. But let's start with Kenny Banya. Let's take a minor character. Kenny Banya was the comedian that was always trying to hang out with Jerry. And somehow Banya ends up in Shiawassee. It doesn't go well for him. It turns out that Banya had a really bad poker problem. And when I say bad, it was like Atlantic City bad, right? Like this guy is 2-9 off suit and going all in. And what Banya did when he got in debt was he started telling jokes at the Owasso poker room. It was the only way he could try to keep his playing going. So you could see Banya every Friday and Saturday night at the Owasso poker room telling these jokes just to try to play. It was weird. Not as weird as Elaine Bennis, though. Things really got different with Elaine. So with Elaine, after the show was over, she starts her own publishing house in Shiawassee. Now, when Donald Trump was running for office again, he stopped in Shiawassee, and it turns out him and Elaine connected. And she started having an affair with Donald Trump. And then he lost. For some reason, Jeremy Root knew where Elaine lived. They got her email address. So Jeremy Root offered Elaine $40,000 a year if she would send naked pictures of herself to him. Elaine declined. But when Elaine turned down Jeremy Root's advances, this pissed Cindy Garber off something bad. One day, Josh Champlain wrote about the Argus Press. We know how that ended. That's what happened to my script there. Kramer had some other issues. We know Kramer had some problems with the stand-up tour. And, uh, turns out that Kramer ended up being a really huge Republican backer. 
And because he was such a strong Republican supporter, the Attorney General Dana Nessel decided to charge him criminally. She spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this. Now, Dana Nessel decided to charge Kramer after she was drunk at a University of Michigan football game one night. I don't know. You have to ask Dana about that one. Dana initially won her case, and she held a press conference about it. But then when she lost on appeal, we didn't hear from Dana for a while. So it's very clear in Michigan, if you're going to vote Republican, well, you should be charged criminally by the Attorney General's office. Jesus Christ. So Kramer had some problems with Dana Nussle. Newman had some good things going on, though. Newman started a reality series in Shiawassee. What happened was he had David Berkowitz's mailbag, if you remember, the son of Sam. And Newman sold the bag. And he opened up this museum, which was sort of like the McQueen Museum in Shiawassee. And he would only give exclusive interviews to Tom Mankey. So nobody really knew what Newman was doing because nobody read Tom Mankey's stuff. But he did come to Shiawassee with the money he made from the mailbag. The soup Nazi did open up a soup stand in Shiawassee, but he wasn't paying taxes the way he should have. That alerted the Michigan State Police Financial Crimes Unit. We know how that story goes, so no soup for you. Things got really strange with Jerry. Jerry and Larry David both settled in Chi-Town. They both started opening up spite stores and it was really heated with the two of them. A lot of civil litigation involved there. It just didn't work out for either one of them. They eventually both moved to New York. And there wasn't a lot of interest. What really, the strangest part of the whole Seinfeld thing in Shiawassee was um, George. George may be the best character on Seinfeld, let's be real. But let me tell you what happened with George. George developed this dating app. Then he lost some money on the internet scheme. And if you remember, George always wanted to be a porn actor. He wanted to go under the name Buck Naked. And what happened is George got into business with the Lion's Den in Perry, Michigan. And then one day there was a sting operation. And George got caught up in some stuff. So George was going to be prosecuted. At the time, Chris Brown was the prosecutor. Now, Chris Brown's a friend of mine, who I'm very excited we work with our firm. But if you know Chris Brown's a prosecutor, he was a complete prick as a prosecutor. I had George's case initially. And Chris offered me a deal. Chris said George could plead to the top of the guidelines with a killabrew not to go an upward departure. I told Chris to go fuck himself. Now, Chris, when you start working on a defense firm, you're going to learn why my anger was so hostile towards you. Because Chris Brown's defense lawyer is going to go after the Chris Browns that are prosecutors. But Chris had no mercy for George Costanza. And I felt I was George's only shot. You know? I really did. Um, with that being said... George and I were going to have a meeting. 
but he would not come to my office in Ann Arbor. He insisted I come to his office. And me and George start fighting about this. You come to my office, now you come to your office. So George ended up hiring this lawyer out of Detroit, a big name. Didn't go well for George. I told the lawyer in Detroit, there's two things you should do. Number one, you should wave the prelim. And number two, you gotta be on time in Shiawas. Well, this Detroit lawyer said, I wanna do my own thing. Ended up in a really bad trial. George paid a lot of money for an inferior lawyer. George did a lot of time at the Michigan Department of Corrections. And that's what happened. The Seinfeld characters in Shiawasi. All right. I'm Bill Amadeo. Have a good night. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.